I'll get you to find John chapter 3, if you will, first. <coughs> I think what I really need is a nice flat white, frankly, brother. But, but thank you for the water. John chapter 3. Uh, and yes, I, as Pastor Phil mentioned earlier on, I, I feel a little self-conscious. Not much, because I actually don't worry too much about myself, but... Um, I came to camp, and this is this outfit is what I call your camp clothes when you forget to bring Sunday meeting clothes outfit. <laughs> uh, because I thought, I, I forgot everything. We forgot a couple of things, actually. And uh, I thought, oh, quick, quick, buy some nugget. I got some old camp shoes. That'll do. And I thought, oh, what, what's clean? I thought, oh, these ones are clean. That'll do. And what, what looks like a reasonable shirt? That looks like a reasonable shirt. And I wear a jumper and... And I said, Pastor Phil, can you lend me a tie? He said, yeah, I've got a few ties. So he lent me a tie. So as I say, I'm a little bit embarrassed, but not much. John chapter 3, if you will. I just don't care. Um, John chapter 3. Look, uh, uh, when, you, when you witness to people and you run across people who are kind of, you know, work colleagues, next door neighbours, that sort of thing, quite often you'll get a, a statement that sort of either is the same as this or similar to this about excuse me, about how they got saved. Verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved, or might get saved. And uh, uh, quite often you, as I say, run across people who have this concept uh, and it's the normal kind of Christian concept out there that you just believe in Jesus and that's enough on its own to save you. Now, don't get me wrong. I love verse 16. Uh, God so loved the world. You know, if I'm ever in doubt about my situation, I think God just loves me. God just loves you. Every time I get up in the morning, I, I usually say to God, first thing, thank you, Lord, that you still love me, that you, I'm filled with the Holy Spirit, that I'm going to live forever. I have no idea why you love me, but you do. I mean, it's a bit like, reminds me of how we sometimes fall in love with a, uh, perhaps an old mongrel we find down at the local rescue, you know, dog place or something or other. Uh, you know, you do. And uh, I sometimes feel a bit like that. But God does love us. And it's just amazing. I love that aspect to it. The bit that worries me a tiny bit is when people that I run across say, oh yes, and all you have to do is just believe in Jesus. Now you do have to believe in Jesus. That's true. It's absolutely true. But it's part of a package, as I want to just point out to you in a moment or two. I guess it reminds me of, um, um, uh, have I ever told you my experience of making or learning to make pancakes many years ago? I was a young fellow in Melbourne Assembly. I was 14 years old, and all the young people used to go to what was called in those days the pancake parlour. Now, I didn't have any money, but mum used to give me a couple of bucks, and uh, um, I'd go to the pancake. My family weren't in the church at all. I was just a 14-year-old kid in the church, going to church. And so mum would give me a couple of bucks, and I'd go to the pancake parlour. I loved the pancakes there. They were amazing. You know, the light fluffy ones and the buckwheat ones and all that sort of stuff. And I thought, but they're just made of such simple ingredients. I reckon I could make this at home and keep the two bucks my mum gave me next time. So I thought, I'll try this. So one Saturday, I sat there with 
uh, a frying pan and some flour and water and milk and all the other you know bits and pieces you find in your mum's you know pantry sort of thing. And I thought, oh, I'll discover how to make pancakes. Now this is before the internet. This is before Google. This is probably before books even. It's a long, long time ago. And I sat there and I thought, how do you make pancakes? And I thought, well, the first thing is there's flour and there's water. So I stuck flour, water, mix it together. Looks a similar consistency. I put it in the frying pan, turn it over, and I thought, doesn't quite work. And it came out a bit gluggy and messy and what have you. And we had a Labrador cross dog named Woofer. And so I thought, that's okay. I'll give it to Woofer. So I just opened the back door and I just went flick like that. And, and Woofer ate it before it hit the ground. He, he loved it. He thought my pancakes were amazing. I didn't. I didn't like it. I went back inside and I thought, what am I missing? And I thought, milk. Maybe it's milk. I made another batch with water, flour, milk. And I, I mixed that up, made another one. And again, it all sort of just glugged together on the pan. And I thought, that's not the right recipe. And I went out the back and I called Woofer. And I, I flicked the next one out the back door and he ate that before it hit the ground. And I got back inside and I tried a couple of other combinations and I tried sugar, I tried uh, butter, I tried, you know, two or three different things. Or maybe it was six or seven different things. I remember there was a vanilla flavour and I thought, I'll try vanilla. <laughs> By this stage, Woofer was hiding out around the stairs at the back door. And I actually sat there and I thought, God, please help me. How on earth do you make pancakes? They can't be that hard. And it suddenly struck me, out of the blue, an egg. You've got to have an egg. I thought, right. So I stuck an egg in and I, I got rid of most of the other ingredients. I stuck an egg in and it was beautiful. And I thought, Woof is not getting that one. It was amazing. I made another one that was beautiful as well and another one that was beautiful as well. And I thought, sometimes in life, You've got to find the egg. And that's true of the Holy Ghost experience. And that's what I want to talk about a little bit this morning. Uh, I need to keep track of the time. What's the time over there? What time am I supposed to finish, Pastor Phil? 12. That's very generous, actually. Um, all right, well, look. And it just reminds me so much of the Holy Ghost experience. There's people who fiddle-faddle with John chapter 3, verse 16 and other scriptures in the Bible that have these different ingredients to the salvation message, and they've never discovered the egg they've never discovered the holy spirit they've never been filled with the holy spirit and it's dog food frankly it's just dog food unless you discover the how the holy spirit works and i want to just point out to you this morning a little bit about this um perhaps by way of illustration acts chapter eight if you will um i've been reading acts just recently actually and uh, it, it does hit you when you go through and read stories like this uh, verse 5, then Philip went down to the city of Samaria and preached Christ to them, and the people with one accord gave heed to those things which Philip spake, hearing and seeing the miracles which he did. For unclean spirits, crying with loud voice, came out of many that were possessed with them, and many taken with palsies and that were lame were healed. And there was great joy in that city. But there was a certain man called Simon, uh, who which before time in the same city used sorcery, and bewitched the people of Samaria, giving out that himself was some great one, to whom they all gave heed, from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the great power of God. So he's a bit of a, probably a bit of a magician, or whatever he was exactly, we're not sure. 
but a bit of a scoundrel. To whom and to him they had regard because that of a long time he'd bewitched them with his sorceries. But, in verse 12, but when they believed Philip, preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptised, both men and women. And then Simon himself believed also. And when he was baptised, he continued with Philip and wondered, beholding the miracles and the signs which were done. And uh, I'll just stop the little story there because sometimes I take people to that story and I say, well, here we are, a group of people who've had uh, wonderful miracles take place. They've been healed and blessed and things have changed. And uh, they've believed Philip preaching the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ and even been baptised. Are these people Christians? Are these people filled with the Holy Ghost, which is what I'm going to show you in a moment. You've got to get. And for most people that you talk to, they'll say, oh, yes, of course they are. There we go in verse 12. They've believed in Jesus Christ in verse 12, so they're clearly Christians. But in fact, they're actually not. If you go down in verse 15, it tells us, oh, sorry, verse 14. Now, when the apostles, which were at Jerusalem, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent unto them Peter and John, who when they come down, prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Ghost. For as yet, he was fallen upon none of them, only they were baptised in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Ghost. And when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, that on whomsoever I lay hands, he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said to him, Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought the gift of God may be purchased with money, and so on. And I'll just stop there. But you've got to visualise this for a moment. Now, Samaria is about, what is it, about 50 kilometres north of Jerusalem there. It's a good day and a half's walk, basically. I suppose you could ride a bit faster, but it's a fair old walk down there. So Peter's preaching in Samaria, and as he's preaching there, people are hearing the gospel, getting healed, and all of, lots and lots of them are getting baptised. And uh, Peter, sorry, Philip is probably with a few other guys in the fellowship there. A few of them have gone up to have a bit of a crack at Samaria. Praise the Lord. And in the process... Someone has said, you know, perhaps it's Philip himself, one of you blokes, go back to Jerusalem and tell the apostles what's going on here because I'm not quite sure where this is going next because the Samaritans were despised by the Jews and they were almost certainly, Philip is kind of thinking, okay, I've baptised them, but uh, what's going to happen next exactly? I'm not sure. So the apostles go up there. Now, it takes about a day to get down there, say, at least a day, probably a day and a half, and they get down to Jerusalem, whoever the uh, other brother is, and he says, oh, I need to have a meeting with the apostles, and he has a meeting with the apostles. You're not going to believe this, what's happened. Philip's up in Samaria. He's preached to a whole bunch of people. You should see the miracles that happened, and he's baptised a whole bunch of them. And the apostles are sitting around saying, uh, Jews don't actually spend a lot of time with Samaritans. This is a bit of a headache. But they've been baptised and they're, they're kind of Jewish. They're kind of Jewish. Samaritans were foreigners who actually had been transplanted into Israel. So they're kind of Jewish. Okay, that's all right. Look, uh, Peter, John, this could be a, uh, you know, a job for the, 
you know, you blokes, why don't you two go up there and have a look, see what you reckon, and take the next steps. Peter and John get up there to Samaria, and all these people have been baptised, and Philip says, oh, by the way, none of them have got the Holy Ghost yet. And Peter and John, their first thought is, you baptise them, let's get them filled with the Spirit. So they start rocking up, maybe a prayer meeting of some sort, praying for them, laying hands on them, they receive the Spirit, and of course they speak in tongues. All the people said. Um, now, what is intriguing about that is the fact that there's at least a two or three day gap between these people believing in Jesus and receiving the Spirit. I suppose you could say, well, but is receiving the Spirit crucial? Let's go to a couple of verses because I want to point out to you in seven ways why the Spirit is crucial. Romans chapter 8, if you will. And I, I sat and did this and thought, you know, the trouble is you end up with too many scriptures once you start thinking in these terms. And the idea that people receive the Holy Spirit, you know, it's funny because there's a, uh, there's, yeah, I can say this, there's a lovely girl got baptised with us at Yangebup probably a couple of months ago now, and she has been, she's from a very religious background and um, um, she's, she's been praying and praying and praying to get the Holy Spirit. She hasn't got it yet. Uh, but she's just determined every time you want to have a pray, she'll get down and have a pray with you and she'll pray and pray and pray and pray and pray. She'll get it, no question about that. Ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. But she keeps bringing religious friends along to the meeting and I keep having the same discussion with them. I feel like recording it and sending them a, a recording because they're very uh, traditional. I mean, they're lovely people, don't get me wrong, but they're kind of, in fact, some of them from down here. Uh, they're, they're kind of Baptisty, Church of Christy, uh, Bethany type of, you know, backgrounded people. Uh, so not your traditional Protestant, a little bit sort of removed from that. But we end up having the same discussion every single time. And they're all convinced, no, you get the Holy Spirit as soon as you believe in Jesus. And it just ain't true. We, we live in a society that is convinced that everything now is instant. Have you noticed that? Everything in our society is instant. You know, it's instant coffee. It tastes... <laughs> It tastes like rubbish. It's, it's, you know, you put it in the microwave, press a button, it instantly heated up or very quickly heated up. You know, um, lots of other things. Whereas a lot of things in the Bible are based on the principle of not instant gratification, but determination and perseverance. That's what it's based on in the Bible. And uh, getting the Holy Ghost, yes, you're going to have to ask and keep asking, seek and keep seeking, knock and keep knocking. That's how it works. That's the only way to get it. And it's not instant. Uh, what, 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 I remember years ago, who remembers when they first brought out instant porridge? It is vile. I remember thinking, I remember thinking, that would be wonderful, instant porridge. I had porridge for breakfast this morning. And I remember thinking, that was something else I forgot to bring the Wheaties. But I remember, <laughs> I forgot a bunch of stuff. And I thought, instant porridge will be wonderful. You know, there it is. It's on the side of the packet. Only takes, I think it was whatever it was. It was the 90 seconds or something. And, and then it was two-minute porridge. And then it became three-minute porridge. And I thought, rat bags. They know it doesn't work, but they're going to keep selling it to us anyway. Porridge takes a good half an hour. And all the people said... <laughs> Amen. All right. I mean, you've got to, anyway, I won't go through the detail. And of course, 
That is human nature. We've convinced ourselves that we can make anything instant now. In fact, I said to this young lady recently, I said, wouldn't it be nice if all you did was receive Jesus as your saviour? That's what they say usually. Wouldn't it be nice if you just had to say, I receive you, Jesus, as my saviour, and you'd burst out in tongues? I said, wouldn't that be nice? She said, yeah, it would be lovely, wouldn't it? <laughs> let's get back down and have some more prayer. Yes, let's get down and have some more prayer, because that's how you get it. You think of Israel, you know, uh, what's his name? Um, Jacob, wrestling with the angel all night. Nothing instant about that. You think about King David uh, being hounded and hunted by Saul over a period of about 15 years. Nothing instant about becoming the king. You know, what I'm saying is Samuel anoints him as a teenager, but it takes 15 years for him to become king. Uh, you think about someone like Joseph getting the revelation from God in a series of dreams that he's going to be the leader of the people of Israel. He's going to be the prime son of Israel. And, of course, he's 17 when he's uh, uh, taken captive and sold off to Egypt, and he waits until he's 30 before he becomes the prime minister of Egypt when he's dragged out of the prison. Yes, through faith and patience. We inherit the promises the Bible teaches us. It's such a strong principle in the Bible. Uh, so Romans chapter 8. So we're talking about the Holy Spirit. Seven reasons we must receive the Holy Spirit. I'll give you them pretty snappily here, I hope. In uh, chapter 8 and verse 9. But ye are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. So we've got to have the Spirit of Christ. Sometimes people say, oh yes, well, I got the Spirit of Christ when I believed in Jesus and took him into my heart and took him as my personal saviour and so on, at terms which are not found in the Bible, by the way, not in the Bible. Uh, I got the Spirit of Christ then, but I haven't got the Holy Spirit yet because that is where you speak in tongues. And you say, but hang on. These references here, go, keep your finger there, but go over to Ephesians, if you wouldn't mind, rather quickly, to chapter 4. Keep your finger there. Ephesians chapter 4. Now, the funny thing is, you actually just read about three different spirits, if I can use that term loosely. Uh, you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so be the spirit of God dwell in you. If any man have not the spirit of Christ, he's none of his. Uh, Ephesians chapter 4 in verse 1, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that you walk worthy of your, the vocation wherewith you are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love. Um, we get the gist of that one, but I'll read you another translation of that because it's, it, it is very powerful. Another translation says for verse 2, always be humble and gentle, be patient with each other, making allowance for each other's faults. Because of your love. It's a wonderful statement, isn't it? Always be patient and humble. Uh, verse 3, uh, verse 4. There is one body and one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Uh, but unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of God. And he's describing here this, this oneness aspect. You know, God never sat at the beginning thinking, I think I'll make two. <laughs> I'll make two spirits and I'll make two baptisms and I'll make, well, let's make another. I'll make three churches and I'll make, oh, I don't know, four ways of walking in the spirit. Oh, 
what about lords? I'll make five lords. No, 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 no. One Lord, one God, one faith, one baptism, one spirit. And all the people said, there's only one. Now, you can describe it different ways. It's like me lifting up this book and saying, well, can you describe this a different way? It's blue. Oh, no, it's not. It's white. And it's got scribbles everywhere. A chook's walked across it. No, no, that's actually writing. Actually, it still looks like a chook's walked across it. Oh, it's only about one centimetre wide. No, it's not. It's about, I don't know centimetres very well. It's about seven inches wide. Oh, it's white on the edge. No, it's not. It's blue on the edge. But it's the one book. That's the same with the Holy Spirit. It's the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, the Spirit of truth, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead. But it's one Spirit. Uh, back to Romans, if you will, chapter 8. Because the next point, next point that Paul is making here is very powerful. Now, if any man, Romans chapter 8, verse 9, halfway through. Now, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. In other words, it's conditional. You've got to get it. A lot of people say, oh, no, no, we're all born with the spirit of God. That's not true. If so be the spirit of God dwells in you, if you've received it. Um, some people say, oh, the Romans, did they speak in tongues? Have a look back in, well, not now, later. Have a look back in Acts chapter 2. And they all received the Holy Ghost and spoke with other tongues. You know, Parthians, Medes, Romans, Elamites, Mesopotamians. You know what I'm talking about? Romans were there on the day of Pentecost waiting for the Lord. They were filled with the Spirit. Day one. Not all of them, but some of them. So he goes on and he says, Now if any man have not the Spirit of Christ... He is none of his. Now, that's a blunt statement just in English. You're none of his. You don't belong. Uh, another translation says, If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him and is not a child of God. Another translation, that's the Amplified. Another translation says, Those who do not have the Spirit of Christ living in them do not belong to him at all. Another translation says, if anyone doesn't have the spirit of Christ living in him, he is not a Christian at all. I mean, it's saying the same thing, but it's pretty blunt. And so when we talk to people who say, yes, I believe in Jesus, well, hang on, according to the Bible, you must have the Holy Spirit in you as well. You must get that. There's a few ingredients to this project, and you haven't found the egg yet. And I'm going to tell you all about it. So he says, you must have the Holy Spirit. And sometimes you sort of think to yourself, why would he state that to the Roman church? They're a Christian church. Why state, if any man have not the Spirit? You know, looking at the audience in Rome there, the brothers and sisters, the fellowship. If any man have not the Spirit, he's none of his. Because he's pointing out that 2,000 years ago, there were still people who'd been baptised and praying for the Holy Ghost as we do today, all the people said. And he's just simply making it really clear. Guys, I know you've got a few blokes there that have been baptised and they're looking to find the Lord and so on. That's great. But don't forget, they've got to get the Holy Spirit because if they don't, they're none of his. Thank God. Uh, reason number two, we'll just quietly move on a bit, I think, if we can. Back to verse 8. Reason number two. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. It's that simple. And he goes in, of course, to state, 
but you're not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwell in you. But the point here is that without the Holy Spirit, we cannot please God. It cannot happen. We can be religious. We can go to church. We can go to mass. We can do nine first Fridays down at our local, you know, St. Patrick's or something or other. We can be involved in charity work. We can be involved in perhaps uh, helping others less fortunate than ourselves. We can be going overseas to help out with Medicine Sans Frontieres or something or other or building orphanages in Thailand or whatever it happens to be. But we're still in the flesh. And as a consequence, you cannot... Please, God, all the people said. It's really simple. Uh, we'll pick another one up in verse uh, 11. Likewise, reckon yourselves also indeed to be dead unto sin, but alive unto God through the Lord, Je- Lord Je- our God. Uh, did I say yes? Yes, verse 7. Ah, read chapter 6. I beg your pardon. Verse 11. Chapter 8, verse 11. But if the spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies. Now imagine it stopped there. God made Jesus come alive again and he's going to make you come alive again. Well, that's great news. Except it doesn't stop there. It actually tells us how he's going to do it. By His spirit that dwelleth in you. That's how he's going to do it. Uh, We're looking forward to being raised up to meet the Lord in the air and that's how he's going to make that happen, by the spirit that lives in you. It's a little bit like a, a rocket flying into space or something. Unless you fill the jolly thing with rocket fuel, it ain't going anywhere. It'll sit on the launch pad. You can have the best electronics in this rocket. You can have it. Who saw that one the other day? A 132 metre tall rocket. Boom, that's, that's a serious piece of rocket. Um, did it actually get off the ground? I don't know. It exploded, did it? No, they meant to do that. <laughs> but I mean, you think to yourself, without the rocket fuel, it ain't going anywhere. You can have this oxygen supply. You can have all the other different equipment you require. You can have the stages that it settles and so forth. But no uh, rocket fuel and you ain't going to launch. You're going to have the man with a lovely baritone voice saying, five, four, three, two, one, blast off, please. And it won't go. You've got to fill it up with fuel. We all know that. And Jesus says here, or rather Paul says here, that's how it works with us. You're going to be made alive. Liftoff is going to happen by his spirit that dwells in you. Uh, We'll leave that for reason number three, why you've got to have the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. And uh, reason number four for me here is that getting the Holy Spirit makes you a son of God. And if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you are not a son of God. Even the Lord Jesus Christ, who arrived on planet Earth as the son of God, even the Lord Jesus Christ, at his baptism, it says the Holy Ghost descended in a bodily shape like a dove. He, in a funny way, he didn't need to do that. God didn't need to demonstrate that. 
but he made sure he had so that nobody would ever be in any doubt. That's what makes you the anointed. And of course, we read here that that is our process as well. He says, uh, you, but whereby you cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. I mean, so, maybe I'm a bit foolish or something, but when I walk around Coles or something, or I'm out you know, having a hit a badminton with some people, I think to myself, I wonder if you realise that you're playing badminton with the Son of God. <laughs> I wonder if you realise that you just picked up the apple I was going to take and you've taken out of the mouth of the Son of God. <laughs> because that's what we are. We're the children of God. Sons and daughters of the living God. Why? Because we have the Spirit. That's the reason. It's just so simple. No Spirit, no adoption, you're not in the family of God. As uh, Jesus said elsewhere, you're of your father, the devil. Ouch. You know, our, our old life before we got saved was in the devil's playground, wasn't it? But now we're the children of God, the sons of God. Um, Ephesians chapter 1. We'll go to reason number 5 now. I'm getting through, okay? Ephesians. And hopefully all of these different things, although they're very simple and very straightforward, help to reinforce with you the critical nature of getting the Holy Spirit. Um, because while you're in this room here, everybody agrees with you that you've got to get the Holy Spirit. Everybody says the same thing. We all say the same thing here. The problem is when you walk out those front doors there and you bump into somebody and they're down at the shopping centre and you're telling them about the Lord, oh, I believe in Jesus. I took him as my personal Lord and Saviour. I've been a Christian, I mean, the one that always gets me is, I've been a Christian since I was eight years of age. I was born again when I was 14. I received the Holy Ghost and spoke in tongues when I was 19. I got baptised when I was 23. <laughs> and you think, whoa, don't do that, don't do that. Um, you know, it's, it's not right to do that, clearly. We repent, get baptised and receive the Holy Spirit. It's a simple you know, package of things to do. Simple list of ingredients. In Ephesians, did I say Ephesians? Yes, okay. Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verse 13. In whom you also trusted, this is the Christians at Ephesus. Ephesus is a place in uh, uh, southwestern Turkey. Okay, so and that's where there were some Christians there where Paul had been uh, preaching. In whom you also trusted after you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also after that you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. You were sealed. And uh, that's a really interesting expression. It's describing, it's like putting your signature on something. It's like authenticating something in modern sort of English. Uh, back in Bible days, of course, they used to seal things with a signet ring. You know, they'd have perhaps wax or some other material and they would seal it or ink, as the case may be. Even now, we sometimes dig up archaeological bits and bobs from over the ages and they've still got their seal attached you know, and the, the scientists and the archaeologists and what have you tell us, well, that's the seal of King Archontops III or something or other, whatever it happened to be. And um, they're sealed. And the reason they're sealed is to make sure that everyone knows that's fed income. That's real. It's actual. Other people might write a letter saying, oh, I'm king, you know, you know Snodgrass I or something or other, but they're not really at all. It's a trick. But if they've got the king's seal on it, then it's fed income. 
It's authenticated. And now Paul the Apostle tells us that's what the Holy Ghost experience is. God sealing us and authenticating us as people that belong to him, people that are his children, people that are washed, people that are now clean, people who are very, very special, the sons and daughters of God, the God of creation. He says, in whom also you are were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. Verse 14, which is the earnest of our inheritance. Suddenly we get another reason why you've got to have the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the down payment. Earnest, there is a habon in the Greek and also in the Hebrew. It means down payment, the receipt, uh, the percentage of money that you put down to buy something. That's what it means. And he says, that's your receipt that you're going to live forever. Uh, I mean, we're not looking forward to being lovely Christians on planet Earth for eternity. You know, that's got knobs on it, hasn't it? We want to live forever and ever with the Lord. We want the new body. We want the one that doesn't get old and tired and frail and forgets to bring their church clothes. We want the body that's going to fly off at a rate of knots. As the Bible says elsewhere, God himself will come and minister to us. God will come and wipe away our tears. It says in that new body in the next age, it says there'll be no more tears, no more sorrow, no more pain, no more death. And all the people said, that's what we want. We want the inheritance. Well, you've got to hang on to your receipt. You know, you buy a house, you buy a car, whatever it is, the bloke will give you a receipt. He'll say, here's a bit of paper. I mean... These days I noticed they're giving me a receipt on my phone. You know, I went to Bunnings the other day and they said, no, no, we don't give you one of those. You get on your phone. Really? I'm a bit confused by that, but I'm just getting old. I like it on a bit of paper with some bloke's name scrawled across the bottom. And, of course, that's what God does when he gives you the Holy Spirit. That's authenticating you belong to him and that's his signature that you've got a receipt to live forever. Chapter 4 across the page tells us, for example, I won't go through all of this, but chapter 4, across the page, down in verse uh, 30, one verse here. Uh, Grieve not the Holy Spirit of God, whereby you are sealed unto the day of redemption. Sealed is exactly the same expression, uh, to stamp with a signet ring. Uh, over to, just quickly, Acts chapter 10, just for a moment. Totally different story. Acts chapter 10. And um, Acts chapter 10, down in verse, just one verse here. This is the, oh, no, 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 no. Acts 15 across the page, Acts 15. Beg your pardon. This is one of the apostles recounting his experience praying for the Gentiles to receive the, or no, he didn't actually even pray for them, how they received the Spirit and so on. And in Acts chapter 15, Peter the apostle uh, tells us what happened. In verse 7, uh, and when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and he said to the men and brethren, you know how that a good while ago God made choice amongst us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness, giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did to us. And put no difference between them, uh, them and us, purifying their hearts by faith. Uh, and, and what this is pointing out is that when Peter was with these people who received the Holy Ghost, I'll show that to you in a second, it says, God bear them witness. God authenticated. God ratified. God made sure everybody know these people were now God's people. How? By giving them the Holy Spirit. 
Uh, sometimes people say, but, but you can't see the Holy Spirit. How do you know when the Holy Spirit comes? Well, go back three pages. You can read it with your own two eyes. Verse 44, while Peter spoke these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost. For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. That's how you know you've got the Holy Ghost. That's God's stamp, God's seal of approval, God's receipt. You speak in tongues. I mean, I like getting up every morning and praying in tongues again. I remember the day after I got the Holy Ghost. I remember thinking, quick, get down and see if you've still got it. And starting to pray and speaking in tongues there, freely it was coming out. I'm thinking, yep, I've still got it. Still looking good. Sweet. That's what it's all about. You've got it for the rest of your life. Um, Over to Acts chapter 19 briefly. Who remembers where we read a moment ago? that the Holy Ghost seals us. Which book was that in? Ephesians, that's right, Ephesians. We read it in Ephesians chapter 1 and Ephesians chapter 4. Well, how about the Ephesians? I mean, maybe they got the Holy Ghost a different way. Chapter 19 and verse 1. It came to pass that while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper coast, came to Ephesus. I won't go through the whole story, it'll take too long. But when you see him praying for them down in verse Uh, 6, and when Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. It's the same process. The Bible says at the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact shall be established. Yes, you've got to have the Holy Ghost. We've given you six reasons so far why you've got to have the Holy Ghost. And how do you know it? Well, we've read in two different places, you speak in other tongues. At the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact shall be established. Uh, Look over to another aspect, if you will. John chapter 14. Uh, John chapter 3. John chapter 3. John chapter 3. Very, very well-known passage, and I I, I realise you'll have read this a thousand times, but if you just indulge me for a moment here. Uh, My seventh reason for receiving the Holy Spirit is given to us here in verse... Uh, we'll read the story. Uh, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. The same came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that thou art a teacher come from God, for no man can do these miracles that thou doest, except God be with him. And Jesus answered and said to him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus saith unto him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter the second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus answered, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Marvel not that I said unto thee, Ye must be born again. Now, as I say, you've read that a thousand times, I'm sure. But My point in this little passage here this time is I want you to just reflect for a moment on the Old Testament relationship with God. Was there forgiveness available in the Old Testament? Mercy? God's kindness? His blessing? All of those things. Were the promises available to the Old Testament people? There's great long lists of them, by the way. Deuteronomy 28 and so on. Lots of them. What's the one thing that's missing? Holy Spirit. 
They're in the flesh. They did the best they could, but they're still in the flesh. And then Jesus comes on the scene and he says, when you're born again, he that is born of the Spirit is spirit. He that is born of the flesh is flesh. What's the consequence of being born of the flesh? The Bible teaches us we die. As in Adam, we all die. The Bible teaches us, you know, uh, um, what's the expression? Dust shall return to dust. You know, I did a funeral just this week. And you, it just reminds you, you know, dust returns to dust. That's the, that's the consequence of being in the flesh. So you can have all of these promises, all of this goodness and grace of God throughout the Old Testament, but no Holy Spirit. So at the end of the day, they're just going to die. Now, what God does after that's up to him. He's going to have a judgment. We know all that about that. But here's the deal in the New Testament. You want to be in the New Testament? The only way to be in the New Testament is to live in the Spirit. It's to be born of the Spirit. It's to pray in the Spirit, to walk in the Spirit, to enjoy the gifts of the Spirit, to enjoy the fruit of the Spirit. Because that which is born of the flesh is flesh. It's just going to die. But that which is born of the Spirit is Spirit. You are spirit. Now, I know that you, you, your body's not. Your body's just made of rubbish, old human material like everybody else out there. But inside you, it says that your spirit and God's spirit have joined together and become one. It tells us in the scriptures there that we're now made not of corruptible material, but incorruptible seed that liveth and abideth forever. It's like conception. You know, uh, uh, you know uh, I'm trying to think of the terms that they use these days, but, um, you know, two, a male and a female egg, you know, I'm trying to think of what's the right word. Anyway, holy, 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 holy. That was a joke. That was just a joke. But a male and female uh, egg combined, and you get a completely different person, don't you? I mean, you know, I remember looking at my first son when he was born many years ago, and I just presumed... He would look exactly like me. <laughs> Black hair, maybe a little moustache. <laughs> exactly like me. I'm the dad. He's a boy. He should look like me. Except he didn't. <laughs> totally different person. I thought, oh, second time around. Second son. This will work better second time. Nope. None, none of my kids, none of them had black hair. None of them. I can't believe that. And, of course... <laughs> They're all completely different. They're unique individuals. And that's what happens with us. God's spirit joins with our spirit. And suddenly we're a new creature, a new creation, one that is going to live forever because we're not in the flesh. We're in the spirit. Thank God. I mean, we know our human body is still hopeless and makes mistakes, says the wrong things, does the wrong things, falls flat on its face. We know all that sort of stuff. But it's the spirit inside of us which makes the difference. And the next time someone says to you, oh, yes, all you have to do is believe in Jesus. I mean, yes, you, by all means, say, yes, you do have to believe in Jesus. But have you found the egg? Have you been filled with the Holy Spirit? Because I want to show you that without the Holy Spirit, well, as we read today, number one, you're none of his. Number two, you cannot please God. Number three, you won't be raised up. Number four, you're not yet a child of God. Number five, you're not sealed by God yet. Number six, uh, I've lost track of what I'm up to now. I've missed a couple there. But you're still in the flesh. You need to get in the spirit. And that will make 
the world a difference. And all the people said. Amen.